then you can read along with us as well as hearing God's word this morning. First Peter chapter 5, two verses, verses 5 and 6. Peter writes by the Holy Spirit, Likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Well, we're going to pound that. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that it's a living word. Thank you for what it accomplishes in our lives, and uniquely so in the whole wide world. And we pray, Lord, that this living word would rearrange of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength today. Anything that needs to be moved out of our lives, pruned away, anything that needs to be nurtured and encouraged in our hearts and lives, we pray that it would do the same. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to conform us into the image of Christ. That's who we want to be like in this world, and we have discovered it to be the richest life a person can live. We thank you for the privilege of growing in that. And we pray, Lord, that these verses this morning would accomplish that in our personal relationship with you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This letter, the Apostle Peter has just finished uh, exhorting those who are called by God to be leaders in the body of Christ or uh, leaders of a local church. They're often referred to as shepherds uh, in the scriptures. And he's been exhorting them concerning their role and their responsibilities in a church and their role and their responsibilities toward Uh, the flock toward God's people. And now what he does is he turns his attention from the shepherds to the sheep, and he essentially declares that as much as God's people deserve uh, good shepherds and good leaders, good leaders also deserve good followers. And as God's leaders are obedient in their calling, that they are to receive the uh, support and the respect of those that uh, the congregations that they serve. And when uh, he exhorts here younger people to submit themselves to their elders, he's talking about not merely age, but talking about those that are in this spiritual position of authority. And uh, we live in a culture that is very youth oriented. And so Uh, All the latest and greatest and the focus of the media and everything so much is toward uh, the pop culture, toward youth, that kind of thing. And uh, but uh, the that isn't the focus of many of the cultures uh, in the world. And it certainly isn't the focus of the kingdom of God. There's a great respect for those that have walked long with the Lord. They have a deep knowledge of God's scriptures And that knowledge is experiential. They not only know the Word of God very, very well, 
but they have lived the Word of God for a long, long time, and they have discovered by experience the wisdom of God's Word, the power of, of God's Word. And, and so these were the kind of people that were put in, men that were put into positions of leadership uh, over these uh, churches. And so the younger people were to submit to their elders, those that had this kind of history with God and were also called uh, to lead the church. And in other words, these men were spiritually mature. So as God has called these men, kind of lay down their lives in making disciples uh, of uh, people in the world, the preaching of the gospel, people coming to know the Lord, now how to grow in this relationship with the Lord. And then there's also the responsibility of keeping a local church uh, free from bad influences, from false doctrine, from wolves, from a lot of things that are always going on in the body of Christ and are always trying to infiltrate any church. And they're unhealthy and they're dangerous and it takes work uh, to keep uh, that out of a local church. And then there is also the uh, what is required in order to keep a local church focused on why in the world does it exist? What are God's priorities for that church? What is it supposed to be uh, doing as any church is supposed to be doing in the whole wide world? But then why has God raised up a particular church and given it a unique focus even beyond all of that and, and to keep a church uh, on message and keep it focused on what God has raised it up to do, that doesn't just happen. If you just leave anything in this world to itself, it will, it will not evolve, it will devolve, it will, it will fall apart, and it will ultimately disintegrate. So it requires leadership, and it requires a lot of work to keep uh, something where it's supposed to be and, and to keep a church well well directed. What Peter isn't saying here in terms of submission, he isn't saying that the members of the church are to submit to leaders who ask of, of the flock anything that is outside of the teaching of Scripture. So there is, I don't have, none of us has to submit to someone who demands that we do something contrary to Scripture. But it also doesn't mean that we have to submit to someone who is in a position of leadership that is kind of imposing their own personal likes and dislikes that have nothing to do with Scripture on everyone else. This is called legalism, where somebody or some group of people become the head of something and then they move beyond the Scriptures in terms of the teaching and now their own personal preferences start to come in. They make commandments and laws of those and they start to impose them upon people. And pretty soon, uh, those are getting all of the focus because they're not given by God. They're nonsense. So they become high-maintenance positions within a church or a denomination. And, and, uh, and pretty soon, it, those become a greater focus than even uh, the Word of God. And, and also, Peter isn't saying that we're to give another human being even an elder or a leader in the church, a place of influence in our lives that belongs only to God. There is a place in our lives, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. We already have a mediator. We don't need another in-between person or mediator in our relationship with God. Leaders exist to encourage us and help us. 
uh, in our relationship with God, but not to take the place of God in, in that relationship or to build a dependence upon uh, upon us. And sometimes, some of, sometimes you can look at that and you can say, well, that's so obvious. But you'd be surprised, even as you look at the body of Christ in general, how eager even Christians are to build a dependence upon another human being because they can see that human being. They can touch that human being. They can be around that human being. And, and sometimes in a relationship with God, he's as present and more present as any human being is. But we like to operate by our senses so often and not by, uh, not by faith. And so we're never to give a, a Peter is not calling us to give any human being that kind of a position in our lives. And unfortunately, there are people that go into the ministry. They have a very, very deep need to be needed. And that's a very, very bad motivation for serving the Lord. And they like to build a dependence upon themselves by other people. And, uh, and, and they can be very, very effective at it. And, and you end up with something that's very bizarre and very ugly and very hurtful ultimately and disappointing. But that's not what Peter is calling us to here. What Peter is saying is that, he's, that the calling of God upon a leader's life deserves the support of the people. It is a tremendous responsibility that uh, that person has, those people have, and they shouldn't have to deal with a kind of continual stream of opposition or kind of a carnal rebellion against those that they are endeavoring to shepherd. Uh, all you have to do is read the Pentateuch, the uh, first five books of the Old Testament, and so much of it having to do with Moses and what he put up with with the children of Israel. And, and Peter is basically saying, don't do that to leaders of a church. I mean, you're going to kill them by behaving that way. And they almost, you know, kind of wore Moses out. He was eager to quit on a regular basis. So God is reminding us that there are enough challenges associated with the calling of a leader in the body of Christ without having to deal with a carnally rebellious congregation or congregant. Here's a couple of other verses in the New Testament that have to do with it. You may not be enjoying yourself. I'm thoroughly enjoying myself on this. Not because it has anything to do with this body at all or any of you at all. This is, I, can't, I, I just say it not to flatter in any way. It's a delight to pastor this church. But Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, uh, uh, the writer of the book of Hebrews said, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. And we urge you, brethren, to recognize those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord. In other words, they're called by God to do that. And they admonish you. So that sometimes they say hard things uh, to us. And to esteem them very highly in love for their work's sake. I remember many years ago when we were still downtown, a man came up to me, never seen him before, and he shook my hand and he quoted that verse to me at the back door. And uh, I said to him, I have never ever known anyone other than a leader to memorize that verse. 
And apparently he probably had problems with submission in his life and was in some kind of a situation where somebody made him quote the verse. But that was the first of years of visits of him in the church, and he ultimately became a very strong influence for God in the church. It is a a statistical fact that the average pastor in the United States will quit their pastorate and leave either to another church or leave the ministry altogether over seven people. Over seven of the kind of people that Peter is saying, don't do that to the leaders. And that's, that, that speaks about how important the subject is and how uh, powerful the influence of uh, rebellious contention people can, people can be to leadership within a church until a person just kind of finally hits the place and says, who needs the aggravation? I'll go someplace else to escape this group of people. So it's fascinating. You can have 93 out of 100 people in the church absolutely thrilled with what it is, but he'll leave because of that seven. Or 193 out of the 200. Or 493 out of the 500. But the influence, that type of person can make life so unpleasant and be such an influence in, in a bad direction that it, has, it can have that kind of influence upon the calling of God upon a person's life. That's the toll that it takes upon a leader. And that's important for all of us to know. And so the calling of God, Peter is saying, upon a man's life as an elder, it's to be respected and it deserves the support uh, of the people. Now, what about a situation that occurs between, say, a pastor and a member of of the congregation? Uh, Neither one is more or less important in the eyes of God. They're just different callings and different place in the body of Christ. So it's not an issue of importance. So what happens, though, when there is something that is, it isn't a biblical issue where you can say that's the verse, that settles it, but it's an issue of uh, where there's the liberty to go in two, three, four different directions where God could be doing any one of, of those things. And so you've got that, that kind of situation and, and uh, somebody has the pastor has an opinion about a direction, and then a member of the congregation has a different opinion about that. Well, that is supposed to get handled where the congregant, after a prayer, and that's very important, and the leading of the Holy Spirit, that person should go to the pastor and make their views known. And that's, that's a perfectly legitimate uh, thing to do. Say, Pastor, I see this differently than how you see this, and so I want to communicate this uh, to you, and it should be a very, very edifying uh, uh, conversation. And then the pastor, if he goes to prayer and seeking the mind of the Lord related to the issue, uh, feels as he comes back from that that he is on the right track and he shouldn't be moved uh, from that, that he has the mind of the Lord on it, then the congregant is to submit to the pastor and then to endeavor to influence the situation through prayer. You're not, a person is not powerless in that situation, as powerful as can be, uh, to continue to engage God through uh, prayer. And most often what will happen is over time, one of the two will come to realize the wisdom of the other person's position. And sometimes the pastor will realize that, 
by the Holy Spirit, and sometimes the congregant will understand that uh, by that same voice of the Holy Spirit. But where everybody's trying to hear God and do the right thing, ultimately everyone does, given enough, uh, enough time. It's very much like the authority structure in a Christian marriage where uh, ultimate responsibility for the family falls on the husband, and thus he's given the ultimate authority for decision-making in the home. Uh, he should uh, receive his wife's input concerning all decision-making in, in the home. That's only wisdom. But on those occasions where there's a legitimate difference of opinion between the husband and the wife on an issue that isn't biblical, the husband is to make that call and the wife is to support him in it. And if she's right, he'll know soon enough. And if he's right, she'll know soon enough. And and so it, it isn't like, you know, things don't become apparent, <clears throat> you know, quickly. He then goes on to declare, all of you be submissive to one another. In other words, Peter isn't saying that the carnal, rebellious Christian is not free to make life miserable for leaders, but they are free to make life miserable for everybody else uh, in the church. That's, uh, that uh, Peter isn't saying that. What he's saying is that each of us should show the same kind of honor and respect uh, to every Christian and to their calling. We are to respect one another and we're to honor one another and, and the calling that God has upon each of our lives. So no matter what our calling is or our area of service is or whatever our station is uh, in the church, whether it's the worship team or those serving in the media ministry or the information counter or the greeting or children's church or uh, wherever, we have that same respect toward their calling and, uh, and their position of responsibility and where we look at one another and we think, what in the world can I do to make their ministry and their service to the Lord easier? What can I do to help them be even more successful in that calling? And that's our heart toward one another. And then he tells us what will be required of each of us in order to uh, live that way and conduct ourselves that way. And what is required is humility. So he tells us, uh, as a result, he exhorts us to be clothed with humility. And so that raises the question, what in the world is uh, humility? Humility, as it's used here, means to have a humble view of myself or to have a modest view of ourselves. And because we have a genuinely humble or modest view of ourselves, we then carry that view and that humility into any and all relationships that are a part of our lives. And he's talking about relationships with one another as as Christians. Somebody might protest and say, well, that would be a lie uh, concerning me. I'm an extraordinary uh, human being. There's just no covering that up. What do you say to that? Well, the Bible has that covered. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul writing to a church who was filled with people with that kind of opinion concerning themselves, he said, For who makes you differ from one another? And what do you have that you did not receive? And the idea is from God. Now, if you did indeed receive it, why do you glory as if you had not received it? Oh, so when you've been put down, sit down. And so the Bible teaches that each of us have very strong reasons for walking in humility. Whatever our gifts are, whatever our accomplishments are, 
in life. Again, the two great ingredients to humility, honesty, and a good memory. And a person that is really honest about themselves and we have a good memory related to our lives will realize we have feet of clay like everyone, all of us do. And there's great, great uh, cause for humility in each of our lives. So from God's perspective, humility suits each and every one of us. Romans chapter 12, verse 3. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly. As God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Galatians chapter 6 verse 3. For if anyone, this is, this is like the, uh, this ends it all right here. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he's nothing, he deceives himself. So that's, that's known as clarity <laughs> in the Bible. And, uh, and, and a, a great, there goes the whole self-esteem movement in the whole United States and in the world. And self-esteem, for Christians, people get goofed up on the whole self-esteem thing. It isn't, the Bible doesn't teach that we're to have a high self-esteem or a low self-esteem. Our esteem is to come from Christ. We, we see ourselves and we view our value and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, on the basis of what God has to say about us and who we are as a result of Christ's presence in our life. So it isn't in a matter of Christians should think uh, poorly of ourselves. That's not what humility is. Um, it is uh, a true humility expresses itself in not thinking of ourselves at all in the sense that we think about God, we think about others, and then we're kind of third on that totem pole and uh, take care of business that way. So uh, that's, you know, what Paul is bringing out to the Galatians here. There's a Puritan writer from the 1600s talking about elders. Uh, his name was William Jenkin, and uh, he put it, uh, it this way concerning the question, what does a sinful person have to be proud of? And uh, in speaking to the fact that none of us can uh, even be proud of our ancestry, he said, our father was Adam our grandfather, dust, and our great-grandfather, nothing. I'll tell you, Senator, preaching like that 400 years ago, they're going to be dealing what we deal with today. So, so much for the family tree. How about pride in our achievements? It's interesting that the only thing the Bible says that's great about humanity is our sin. Genesis chapter 6, and God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. That was pre-flood, and God said it's going to be like that before Jesus returns, and we're fast approaching that pre-flood level of wickedness once again, aren't we? So again, possessing humility means that I have a modest, humble, honest view of myself. And because I do, humility will then mark my interactions with other people. So whatever our differences or uh, in terms of personality or ways of doing things or way of saying things, there's a recognition that uh, God loves every single person in this world. He sent his son to die for each person uh, in this world. He loves them as much as he loves me. And, uh, and Jesus died to save each one as much as he died to save me. Now, Jesus himself is the greatest example of humility in all of human history. In fact, he is the definition 
of humility. Let me read you from uh, 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 Philippians chapter 2. For some of you, you'll be hearing it for the very first time. Others of you, it's, it's an old, old friend. Sometimes we think, okay, Philippians chapter 2. I know that verse so well. This is where I wish that every time we read the Bible, we read it for the first time. But just thinking about humility and the humility of Christ... It says, Paul wrote and he said, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the very form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, Coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Let me read you one other verse in this vein. Jesus is one of his great autobiographical statements in the Gospels. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, where he declared, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Speaking of humility, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Pride is completely inconsistent with Christ. It is absolutely inconsistent with Christianity. It is impossible to represent Christ or Christianity in this world on any level while under the influence of pride. That's the danger of pride. It wasn't just the sin that caused Satan to sin, though Satan, the first sin that ever entered into creation, not talking about the earth and Adam and Eve there, but in all of the universe and creation, the angelic realm was, came into God's creation through pride, the great I wills of Satan. I will become like the most high God. And he, and he wasn't content to live under God's wisdom or under God's authority. And so he rebelled against that. And, and so there is that, there is that, uh, pride and, and, and all. But then you, to, uh, when that pride is a part of our lives, it is, it's impossible to represent Christ because there was no pride in his life or to represent Christianity properly, again, while under the influence of pride. Notice he says that we are to wear humility like a garment. He said, be clothed with humility. In other words, humility is to adorn our lives in the same way that that we wear clothes. In other words, when peop- the first thing that people recognize about our lives um, is what we're wearing. And so the uh, humility as a part of our lives as Christians is to be as apparent as clothing is uh, on a human being. And, and so this adornment is to be uh, noticed, this, this mark of humility to be so 
uh, strong. The word for clothed that's used here speaks of any article of clothing that was tied with a knot. And so it, re- it, could, it referred to, among other things, the apron of a slave. And so they would put on an apron even over the humility and simpleness of their, their regular garments in order to do a, an especially low task or menial task. It would require require great uh, humility. Just because a person's a slave in the ancient world or a servant in the modern world doesn't mean that when they do those low things that they don't know they're doing a low thing. They know they're doing a low thing. We all have the same conscience. We all have the same dreams in life. We all have the same aspirations. Just because they have the position doesn't mean that they're not aware of the the demands of the position. And so that apron would be put on, and we're told, of course, in John's Gospel, chapter 13, and I'm convinced that Peter was thinking about this when Jesus took that towel uh, on the night before his crucifixion, and he took that uh, towel and he tied it, we're told. He, He girded himself with it, had to tie it behind in a knot, which makes it one of these articles of clothing. And then he proceeded then, clothed himself in humility, then proceeded to wash the feet of the disciples. And when he had finished in John 13, uh, washing their feet, taking his garment, he sat down and he said to them, do you know what I've done uh, to you? And he said, well, you washed our feet. Now there's a little more to it than that. You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then... Your Lord and your teacher have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. And verily, verily, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than him who sent him. If you know these things, that's great, but blessed are you if you do them. And so humility is expressed in our willingness to serve other people even when it requires taking the lowest position in order to do that. What's the old saying of uh, how well we're doing on becoming a servant? And Jesus was a servant, so it's a very high position to take. So how do I know how I'm doing in the school of becoming a servant? Well, we know how good we're doing uh, by how we respond when somebody treats us like a servant. So if it's an affront to us or it's, or it's an offense to us and we respond in that kind of a way, it's an indication that there's a lot of pride that's still there in the place. And so as we walk with the Lord and, and uh, realize that he's our example, people treat us like servants and then we, uh, you know, it's not an affront. We recognize this is what uh, it is that we're called to. So if Jesus didn't consider the washing of the disciples' feet to be below him, and listen, washing somebody's feet is pretty low. It was low in that culture. I'm not really interested in washing anybody's feet unless God told me to wash somebody's feet. Sometimes they have churches that will do like the Lord's Supper and they add like a foot washing thing, you know. Everybody comes with the best socks they have, and they wash their feet like crazy before they come to the service. Yeah, if God told me to do something like that, but it isn't a thing of thinking I'm better than doing that. I just don't want to touch other people's feet. So listen, I got that off my chest, and now you know. But there are, there are people that you know, have a, some Christians who have this a sense of such self-importance that 
there are certain things that they won't do, certain ministries they won't be involved in, and things that they think are below them. I don't vacuum carpets. I don't empty garbage cans. I don't, you know, clean up spit up in the, uh, you know, infant room or this kind of a thing. And the reminder of Scripture is that if a person, a Christian, comes to that place, then they're greater than our Lord in their own minds. For whoever of you desires, Jesus said, to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And it's so important to hear this and just to have it, even though most of us know this, just have it wash over our lives periodically related to humility and related to pride. Because pride is just such an ugly, ugly uh, thing in anyone's life, but it's especially noticeable and especially unpleasant in the life of a Christian. Because again, who we're aiming at and who we're representing is, uh, you know, it, it's it's inconsistent. Now, the reason we're to be clothed with humility, verse five, is God's promised active activity uh, toward the proud and toward. Uh, the humble. So he tells us that God actively resists the, prou- the proud. And what is pride? Pride means to see myself above. That's the literal meaning of the word pride in the New Testament. It means to see myself above you, to see myself above another human being, to see myself above doing a certain thing. And so that's, uh, that's what pride means. Examples of what that can look like. Uh, sometimes uh, uh, God mentions it in Proverbs chapter 6, among the things that he hates is a proud look where someone is, carries themselves, gives off a vibe of self-importance. You could just tell by the way that the proud look and the proud way of carrying themselves and, and emanating that, that sense of, of importance or superiority, it's uh, unlike our Lord. Pride can be manifested in a sense of entitlement where a person begins to believe that everyone exists to serve them, to do their bidding. And, and so pretty soon that kind of a person's life is loaded in one direction where everybody in their life is doing all of the giving, they're doing all of the getting, and there's very little giving coming out of, uh, of their life. And typically that kind of person is so proud and self-absorbed that they don't even realize uh, what they're doing. They don't have a single thought for the needs of other people. After all, everybody else exists for their pleasure. And then pride also uh, reveals itself in the mistreatment of other people. If I see myself above others, then I've got to be constantly proving that. And always that will translate into the mistreatment of, of other people, treating them in a way that is very different from uh, how Christ would have us to treat uh, people. Someone has said that pride is the only known disease that makes everybody sick except the person who has it. Isn't that the truth? I'm not talking about other people. I'm talking about myself too. I think that's great. It's the only known disease that makes everybody else sick except the person who has it. One of the great problems of pride 
in our lives is that by its very nature, the first thing that it disables within our lives is the ability to recognize it. So we become too proud to realize that we're proud. And now we get on a treadmill or we get on a roll that is just going to end in disaster because God's going to resist the proud. And so it's a very dangerous place uh, to be. And so that's why so often the person that's lifted up in pride is the last person to realize that they're lifted up in pride and they only come to discover it after they've basically destroyed about every relationship in their life or destroyed their life altogether. So you say, are we defenseless against it? No, we aren't, because we have the mirror of God's word to read, which will speak the truth to us about pride and about anything. And then we also have the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives as Christians who will speak to us about pride. Hey, buckaroo, you're the big shot now? I mean, is that how I I saved you to treat people like that? I mean, God can, he can be pretty firm, can be real firm. When well, we leave certain circumstances and we have fallen way short of, of what he wants us to be in that situation because for a moment or for a minute or for five minutes or for an hour, somehow we got to feeling our own Wheaties and got lifted up in pride. And the Lord knows how to pull us back, and we certainly give him praise for that. Now, you, again, uh, this is something that doesn't just affect the unsaved world where pride is kind of uh, exalted as a, I mean the self-absorption and the and self-consumed and and if you've got it flaunted I mean pride is is nurtured in our culture and exalted is a is the way to go and, and and but he's not just talking about you know how it affects the, the unsaved in the world but Peter's writing to Christians and you think about how many church conflicts and how many splits and how many divisions have occurred in the body of Christ because of pride? How many people end up being very uh, hurt and abused as a result of it? Peter also reminds us that God's promise, promises, that God promises to actively resist pride when he finds it. And the word resist there, it means to arrange against. And the idea is to arrange an army against pride when God sees it uh, in our our lives. And he really does that. The proud, I don't care whether in the body of Christ or in the world, ultimately the proud person always gets humbled sooner or later. It just happens. You just watch it and watch it and watch it, and then you see it happen, and then you go, please, Lord, protect me from going down that path. Think about uh, Pharaoh in the Old Testament, his arrogance and his pride. He's the most powerful man in the whole wide world, and God brought him down. God resists the proud. Think of Nebuchadnezzar. Is not this the great Babylon that I have made? He didn't make it. God was all God's use of him as his instrument at that point in human history. God brought him down. Seven seasons he lived as an animal until he realized that uh, the Lord rules over the affairs of the world. I think in the New Testament of King Herod, his violent death, when um, he was giving a speech and the people just to flatter them, you know, politics is the same old thing. So they wanted his favor. And so as he's giving his speech, the people began to chant, these are not the words of a man, these are the words of 
a god, you know, and he's just soaking all of that up. And God smote him, and, uh, and, and he died as a result. So God does resist the proud because he hates the sin of pride. And, but it isn't just out in the world. It's also in the body of Christ. I don't care. And I think Peter understood this very, very uh, much because you remember on the night before Jesus' crucifixion, though they all deny you, talk about see myself above, this spiritual riffraff that you've called... I mean, you only got one out of 12 right in calling the apostles. And here I am, I'm carrying all this dead weight. Though they all deny you, I will not deny you. And he ends up humbled and bitter tears that he weeps as a result of of his pride and all and falling flat on his face. And, of course, the Lord you know, loved him too much to let him be successful in his pride. So God humbled him just like he humbles all of us. I I assume everybody that serves the Lord and knows the Lord has been humbled at some time or another. Dead silence. For those of you who are listening to this tape, there's dead silence. There, I see a hand in the back. God bless you. There's two of us in the room. No, but we do. We God does that. It's an ongoing temptation. And he's faithful to do that, to humble us, but then also to restore us in that humility. But notice, too, that God also actively gives grace to the humble. Humility is powerful stuff. When, you see, when we see true humility in another human being, what does it make you do toward them? You just root for them. You just say, man, that is a great man. That is a great woman. I just pray great things for their lives. And you hear something good happens in their life. God brings some grace into their life. And you just think to yourself, hip, hip, hooray. Just couldn't happen to a better person. And there's just something about this mark of humility that is just very, very uh, attractive. And so it's powerful and it's attractive. And God, it's attractive not only to human eyes, but also in the eyes of God. And, and so the Lord promises to bless that kind of a person that walks in humility. He says, I'm just going to lavish. That humility allows God to lavish the full expression of his grace upon that that human life. And he has a lot of expressions for his grace that he wants to pour out on his life. Let me read to you a verse related to this. Isaiah chapter 66, verses 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me? And where is the place of my rest? For all these things my hand is made and all these things exist. God's saying, you think I'm impressed by the temple or I'm impressed by some physical thing that you can build for me? So I'm not impressed by it. He says, here's what impresses me. Thus says the Lord, but on this one, I will look, and on him, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. That's what blesses him, and he, and he in turn will bless it. Now we close here now with what's the logical conclusion of the fact that God will resist the proud and he will give grace to the humble. Well, the logical conclusion is what he says in verse 6 here, and that is we will... We should then humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God that in due time he might exalt us. 
So we can wait when we find ourselves, uh, you know, a little bit of pride creeping in or some, an attitude like that. We can wait for God to humble us, which is always um, unpleasant. Or we can recognize it by the Holy Spirit and through the Word of God in our own lives and say, all right, I know what I can do here. I can choose to humble myself so that God is not forced to humble me. And he will be forced to if we don't learn to humble ourselves. Jesus told us what this humbling ourselves will look like in a parable that he told about. He had been invited to a rich man's house, and it was obviously a very, very large room, a great feast. And as he was in the room, he noticed how as people progressively came into the room, they automatically went to the highest and most prominent seats and, and uh, at the tables. And so it was filled. The pla- place ended up getting filled from the front to where the, the uh, host was, uh, filled progressively from the front to the back. And, and as he said that, he began to speak uh, to the, the people there. And he said to them, listen, when you come into a place and you get invited like this, speaking to his disciples, he says, don't go and take the highest seat. Because you, you might take and promote yourself into a higher position than the master of the feast ever intended you to be there. So if you put yourself in pride up into these seats, you might force the master to say, what are you doing in this seat? Give way and your seat is given to somebody else. And then there's the humiliation, the humbling of walking all the way to the you know, end seats at the other end of the room. He said, when you go into a room like that, find the lowest seat. Find the lowest place, the the chair furthest to the back, and then sit down there so that then if the master of the feast comes in and sees you sitting there and says, what in the world are you doing sitting way out here? I want you to sit up close to me at the head table, and then he brings you up and he exalts you. But if I exalt myself, all I can do is go down. But if I, if I humble myself, all, all, the only place you can go is up. So it rele- releases us of all that aggravation and un- uncertainty uh, related to it. And, and so as Christians, we can learn how to humble ourselves so that God doesn't have to do it. How do we do that when we're faced with two choices? Take the lower place. Take the humbler place. Somebody says, well, won't I run the risk of being overlooked and missing out on God's calling upon my life? Mm -mm. In fact, the exact opposite will occur because God promises to those who choose a life of, of, of humility, he will exalt you in due time. No Christian ever takes the lowest place and is in any danger of losing for taking that position. Because the Bible teaches, Psalm 75, uh, verses 5 through 7, that God is the one who exalts us. Do not not lift up your horn on high. Do not speak with a stiff neck, speaking of pride. For exaltation comes neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and he exalts another. We will never ever be overlooked by God by taking the lowest place. 
He will take care of us. He will always promote us to the place of influence that he wants us to have, and it will give him pleasure to do that. Now, at the time that Peter wrote this letter to Christians, every Christian at that time is facing tremendous opposition from the world. They've got a lot of problems in their life, in the way that the world is was persecuting them at that time, and they didn't need the additional conflict of being attacked by fellow Christians who were lifted up in pride. And they needed, and we need, our relationships with one another as Christians to be peaceful and to be edifying. You never have a fight in a church, and you certainly never have a church split over who's going to take the lowest position. It just simply does not happen. It's always because something of pride has been tweaked or someone has come under the influence uh, of pride. And so in order for a Christian church like this one or anyone to remain a peaceful place and an edifying place, it requires that we actively stay alert to pride in our lives, and then actively choose to clothe ourselves in humility. We cannot control how the world treats us. That's out of our control. Not God's control, but our control. But we can control how we treat one another as Christians. And it is always to be done, never under the influence of pride, but always under the influence of humility. It's a good reminder. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for the mirror of your word. And thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for the quiet ways that you resist pride in our lives allowing us to, in a quiet place, to repent of that and to turn to humility. We thank you, Lord, that you have us on a very short leash in this area of our lives as Christians, and we like it to be so. We don't want to hurt people or damage people under a sense of pride or a sense of superiority, and we're all prone to it. Lord, you see our hearts. It's clear to you. And we just want to thank you for the warning and the exhortation of your word. And we pray that this time in your word this morning, the ministry of your Holy Spirit in this room, that you would just eradicate pride in our lives this morning, anywhere that it is a danger to us and a danger to others, and then nurture this beautiful humility and the peaceful beautiful, grace-filled life that comes with humility. And we ask it of you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you stand here this morning and you are not yet a Christian...